Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them, which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. Our Heavenly Father, I pray now that you would bless the reading of your word and the preaching of it. Speak to our hearts. May souls come to you for salvation. May we ponder these truths this morning and rest in your word. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1865, William Booth founded an organization known as the Christian Mission. It was trying to do a lot of good for the poor people in town and tied it to the idea of preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He once wrote in a letter, the Christian Mission is a volunteer army. His son responded, volunteer? I'm not a volunteer. I'm a regular or nothing. He had been volunteering for years and serving in the organization, and he didn't like the idea of simply being called a volunteer when he saw himself as a regular, as a soldier, as fully devoted to the cause. Booth then changed in his writing from it being the Salvation Mission to calling the organization the Salvation Army, which we still see outside of Walmart today trying to raise funds. So the idea there of what his son was saying is that I want to be fully recognized for what I am. I'm not just a volunteer who's shown up every now and then, but I am a full-blown regular. I belong to this organization as much as anyone else. In Galatians 4, Paul writes about the idea of being a son or being a servant and not getting stuck at the stage where we are a son, but we're treated like we are a servant. In the last year, Jerry Jones, had a, owner of the Dallas Cowboys, had a story come out that years and decades ago, when he was married, he had an affair that produced a child. He entered into an agreement with the mother that he would pay a certain amount of money, but that it would be kept private that she was his daughter and she would not be known by the Jones name. In like manner, the president's son uh, named Hunter was has apparently lived an illicit life of much struggles, addictions, and what the Bible would call sin. And through one child that was produced from a short-term relationship he had, he petitioned the court that he would pay a certain amount of money to support the child and the mother. But one of the conditions he wanted the court to place upon the money was that she would not be allowed to use his last name. I can imagine there's a great deal of pain involved in being a child, yet not being treated 
like you're actually in the family. In being a child, but being denied the full rights of a child, even the name of your father. Dave Ramsey, the financial advice host, takes calls all the time and quite often he'll get calls from someone who says, my parents left me out of the will or my parents left my brother or sister out of the will and now they're mad at me. And sometimes that's necessary because a parent sees a child who may be addicted to drugs or living some kind of really crazy lifestyle and they say, I don't want to take my money that I worked for and give it to them in a way that hurts them. But nonetheless, it causes a lot of pain and hurt feelings when in a legal setting, a will is read and someone who is equally a child and equally blood as their siblings is left completely out of the will. They're not given the rights of being an heir. They're not giving the full blessings of being a child. In that type of situation, legally, it is as if you are not in the family at all. You may be a son or a daughter, but you're not being treated like a son or a daughter. The Bible is full of some beautiful verses that explain these truths. Behold, John says, What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Have you ever stopped to meditate on and ponder just the depth of this beauty and the gloriousness of this truth that you and I, who have no merit of our own that would ever earn us a spot in heaven, would be able to be called sons and daughters of the living God and have all of the full rights of the inheritance that goes to the children of God. Some people have said, well, all of us are God's children. I think we're all God's children in as far as the sense that He created us all. That we should look at every human being as a image bearer of God created by Him and love one another and treat everyone with respect. But Jesus said to the Jews who had proudly proclaimed, Our father is Abraham. Jesus said, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father will ye do. And Jesus told them the truth. But they did not believe him because they were clinging to their sin, clinging to their legalism, clinging to, the, clinging to their sense of self-righteousness and trusting in that to make them children of God. Because being a child of Abraham was being a Jew. They said, we're a Jew. We don't need salvation. And Jesus told them, everyone needs salvation. And if you have not come to the Father through Christ, then spiritually speaking, ye are of your father, the devil. John also says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So if we want to be a child of God, it's conditionally tied to us receiving Christ as our Lord and Savior. But once we do, we can boldly proclaim, I am a child of God. And Paul says that if you are truly a child of God, your inheritance is secure and you are entitled to all of the rights and privileges of a child. Let me back up to Galatians 3 and kind of introduce the thought to, to go in chapter 4 verse 1 because the flow continues. Paul said in verse 24 that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. A schoolmaster being a teacher or a tutor that would take a young child under his wing who one day would be an heir of the household or of the empire and he would make sure that the child went to school. He would provide him with teaching and instruction. 
Paul then boldly proclaims with no debate to be had about the matter. After that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. The schoolmaster was the law. And Paul says, if you have received Christ by faith, you are no longer under the law. This is the whole purpose of the entire book of Galatians. This lengthy letter is written to churches in a region that were beginning to be consumed with legalistic teaching that were saying, you have Jesus, that's good, but Jesus isn't enough. You need circumcision. You need the ceremonial law. And if you do not keep it, you cannot be saved. Or at minimum, if you do not keep it, you cannot fully be sanctified and the mature Christian that you need to be. Paul had no patience for this doctrine. He minced no words. He said in chapter 1, Though I or an angel from heaven or any other man would preach unto you any other gospel than the gospel that you have received, let him be accursed. And as the Judaizers said in Acts chapter 15, they began to teach, except you be circumcised after the law of Moses and keep the law, you cannot be saved. That is another gospel. That is a heresy. That would bring upon you accursedness for all of eternity. If you were to put your faith in the keeping of the law, Old Testament, or any other system as a way to try and earn your way to God. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed. And then notice what he says, and heirs according to the promise. An heir is the child to whom everything is left. The empire will be yours as it is, as it were, if you were the heir and you would inherit from your father all of the rights, the privileges, the money, the running of the household, the lands, the position of heir is a position of promise where you look forward one day and say, it will all be mine. It will all be given to me because of who I am. So let's say number one, then we'll continue on into chapter four. Number one, the law kept us as a servant. Paul continues right on in Galatians four, verse one. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. Here's what he's saying. He may positionally be Lord of all, which means master of the household. But if he is still a small child, he's really not that different from a servant. In other words, you may be a four or five year old child who legally is going to inherit the household one day, inherit all of the money, but when you're four or five years old, they don't just turn you over the keys. You're waiting someday for that future inheritance. The heir may be in line, but he doesn't call any of the shots. And little children, if they're being raised right, don't get to make many decisions for themselves. When you're, you have a small child, you're telling them when they're supposed to get up, when they're supposed to go to bed, when they have to brush their teeth, what they can eat, when they can eat, what they can wear. And by the way, I don't think that church or spiritual things should be the exception to that. It amazes me to hear people from time to time say of a child who's still very small, well, I'm not going to make them go to church because I want them to just choose for themselves what they're going to do. 
but they don't let them choose whether they're going to go to school on Monday morning or whether they're going to brush their teeth before they go to bed. And you can't force children to receive the things of God. But while they're your responsibility as a minor child, you sure can force them to get under the teaching of it inside the home and outside of the home and pray that God does the work so that one day they will choose the right things. What Paul is basically saying here is that Israel, when they had the law, they were in line for the inheritance of God because they were following the system and the commands that God had given them. But they were like a child who was waiting for the fullness of the inheritance to come. So then when the Galatians were trying to be Jewish and trying, though they were Gentiles, to take upon them the whole keeping of the law and take that as a way to get to God, they were trying to back up and go back into the baby stage, short of the full completeness of the gospel. Babies are cute. Kids are cute. They knock their milk all over the table and you go, well, that's what kids do. They're cute. They need help. But if they're 30 and 40 years old and they're still behaving the exact same way, it's not as cute anymore. And the Bible contains a lot of teaching that says spiritually, we come to Christ after salvation. We're like little babies in Christ and we need to be fed with milk and we're maybe not ready for the full meat of the word yet. And that's fine. But Paul got upset with the churches he wrote to when he said, you're still acting like babies. I'm having to feed you with milk instead of give you meat. But it's been long enough. You should have been able to teach the milk to others. And I should have been able to feed you the meat of the word of God. But you're backing up and spiritually you're refusing to grow up. So then when we first come to the Lord for salvation, it's understandable that we don't know much of the Bible. My dad said before when he got saved at age uh, 17, I believe it was, he said most of the things I I was doing that were sinful, I didn't even know they were sins. And you can't look at a baby who comes out of the womb and say, why don't you have a job? Why is your room not clean? Why are you not taking care of yourself? And in like manner, when someone comes to Christ in the beginning as a baby Christian, you can't get upset at them and say, why aren't you acting mature? Why are you still struggling over here? It takes time to come to fullness of the faith where we're rooted and grounded and able to teach others also. So those of us who've been saved, those of us who know the Lord, are called not just to sit back on all of our knowledge and experience, but to look for ways to invest in others and teach and train them so that one day they may become mature enough to turn around and take what we've taught them and share it with somebody else. And that's the plan of the Great Commission. It goes from the gospel to the teaching everyone all the doctrines of Christ after we are baptized. Salvation is by faith, but the rest comes out of a heart of love from a position of growth. So what they were doing is they were clinging to the law. Paul says you want to go back to the place of being a servant, technically, instead of being a heir of the gospel and an heir of eternal life and an heir where your inheritance is all the fullness of the riches of what God has promised to his children. You shouldn't desire to be a servant. So when they were clinging to the law, they were clinging to an inferior position. The heir who is a child has a different position than the servants, but their rights are about the same. That child would be treated as if they were a slave or a servant. They would be under severe regimen, restrictions, and discipline as Israel was. And I'm sorry, but in writing this message this week, I just couldn't help but think about uh, baby Simba. I just can't wait to be king. Okay, that's kind of the idea there. He's positionally in line to inherit everything, but they're still on top of him telling him everything you have to do. And so was Israel 
under the law. They were under a position where their hand had to be held and they had to be given 613 commandments to constantly tell them what they were supposed to do because they were still in the position of a servant or slave even though God was bringing them up and pointing them by faith to be children of God. So it says the child, okay, verse 2 says, but the child is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. The tutor or the governor would simply be a steward, a teacher, a manager, or a guardian. Perhaps here the word for tutor means that it was like the personal teacher of the child, and the word governor would be like the chief supervisor of a, a big estate where all the other servants reported to the governor. But the meaning is, again, of a schoolmaster who would take the young boy growing up in the Greco-Roman Empire and would say, someday you're going to be over a lot of men. Someday you're going to command the household. But right now, I'm going to give you discipline if you don't clean your room. You get the idea. Again, this is talking about Israel and the law. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. A couple of different times here, Paul's going to use the word for elements. What he's talking about when he says we were children and were in bondage, he's talking about Israel who had the law, but not Christ. And just the same by application, he's surely talking about all of us before we came to Christ. We were children. We were in bondage under the elements of the world. The law could do many things for the Jewish state. It could guide them. It could protect them. It could teach them some disciplines. It could ultimately teach them and all of us what sin is. What's the definition of sin? What's the penalty of sin? But the law was wholly insufficient to be able to make anyone a grown son, to take you past that stage of a child awaiting the promises, and to make you truly God's child. This the law could not do, because the law was a contract. Keep it perfectly, and you can live. Offend in one point, and you are guilty of all of it. So the law was really good at condemning us, but not at giving us grace, or making us children of God. So the word here for elements, and he says when we were in bondage, we were under the elements of the world, it means basics, essentials, beginning things, introductory things. The same as you would see the word elementary school on the outside of a school that lets you know it's there to teach the children the very beginning principles of all the things that they are going to learn. The Greek word for elements was used in one man's writing to talk about the learning of the different letters of their alphabet. So in other words, it's literally like saying, learning your ABCs. It's like learning the very basic principles of, if you drop this, it'll fall. Why? Gravity. A beginning point, but then further along, you would move all the way to advanced calculus and whatever other things you could study. It would be a long journey from the basic principles until graduation. And Paul will say, as far as what's in the world and of the law itself, it was simply basic elements like a beginning point for little children, but not for someone who is fully mature enough to understand and receive the gospel. Okay, so 
in the, the Catholic Church, the catechism is what? First grade to eighth grade, Islam and the Jews have similar type of teachings where they take children and they begin to teach them the very basics of the fullness of the doctrine. And by the way, Jesus, if he was subjected to the law, as scripture says he, he would have been, he would have gone through the same type of program where as a child he would have gone to a rabbi or a teacher and begin to receive the instructions. So it's just something that's interesting to think about. I think that it's primarily the parent's job to disciple their children and teach them, but there's a lot of great benefit as well of getting them under other teaching and other people who may be able to help teach them the Word of God as well. And Jesus was submitted to that type of a process. Um, So I don't want to get too bogged down, but Paul in Colossians twice uses this phrase, the rudiments of the world. The rudiments of the world. And ties that to the law that their basic elementary teachings, the ordinances, as far as dietary law, touch not, taste not, handle not, and so on and so forth. Uh, so let's go back Galatians 4.3. It's the elements of the world. Of the world means that they are temporary and they are fading just like the world is. It's only 11.30. Y'all are still here, right? Everybody stay with me. I'm going to try to catch in between talking too much about the same point and in between rushing through it so we don't get it. So stick with me here and pray that the Lord will help me. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. So the phrase here for fullness of time means the time when the father knew it would be the right time to send the son. The right time in history. The right time in the nation of Israel in their existence and in their history. This verse and a couple of them afterwards reaffirm the doctrine of the Trinity. They reaffirmed the doctrine that Jesus did not begin to exist when he was born in the manger, but rather he was with the Father, creating all things before the world ever was. And Galatians says the Father sent him forth. Jesus said, I came forth from the Father. I am coming to the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. So before he was born, he was with the Father. After he left, he went back to the Father. He's God from the beginning of time to the end of the ages. He's Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is God, equal to the Father. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So the idea here of Paul saying in verse number 4 that he was sent forth from the Father, born under the law, is simply telling us that Christ was born to a Jewish home. He submitted to the laws of that time because he was submitting to the plan that God had for the nation of Israel at the time period that they were under the law. He was made under the law to take the law's curse because the law brings condemnation. The law brings a curse, not redemption. So number one, the law kept us as a servant or a slave. Number two, Christ keeps us as his child. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. So in the big picture, here's what Paul is saying. The little child who's four years old that one day is going to inherit his father's empire has a good position, but he's treated like a little child or a servant without much rights. And so too was Israel and all who were without God when they were under the law, but Christ did not came. 
But God, as He knew when the time would be from the foundation of the world, sent Jesus to redeem His people from the curse of the law so that He might deliver to them the full position of being a son of God with all of the rights and privileges that sons of God are entitled to. Only Jesus could do this because only He could perfectly keep the law. The law was not just Ten Commandments, but on Mount Sinai it was 613 commandments. Then the Jewish rabbis and teachers added literally thousands of commandments on top of that. Jesus said, I'm not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So He was come to be the fulfillment of the law, insofar as the law was pointing towards a future Savior who we needed to come save us from the condemnation the law brought. Jesus was the fulfillment of that. He also fulfilled the law in the sense that He perfectly kept the law for the very first time in history. He was the fulfillment, the completeness of that law because He could live 33 years and never once sin. Galatians 4.5 then brings in the beautiful truth at the end of verse 5, He's redeemed us that we're under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Michael Reagan wrote a book that he entitled about his life story. He entitled the book, Twice Adopted. Because Ronald Reagan adopted him as his son, brought him into his home, and gave him the full legal rights of a son, even though he wasn't his blood-born son, And then he said, when I was saved, the Lord Jesus Christ brought me into the family of God. And though I wasn't a blood-born son of God, I've been adopted now twice, once by an earthly father and once by a heavenly father. And I belong fully to both families because of a kind heart of love that was willing to take a child who needed a home and adopt him and give him all the rights of a son. Now listen. Adoption grants the child the full rights and privileges due to a blood-born son or daughter and does so not out of obligation, but by choice, out of a heart of love. You need a home. We have one. So we choose out of love to bestow upon you all the full gifts of a child as if you had been born through our own blood. Paul then says, "...and because ye are sons..." God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Okay, so listen for just a minute, because I've got some more scriptures and some things to say, but this verse is so rich and so beautiful in the reality of what it means to us as Christians. First of all, He says, because ye are sons. Not you're waiting someday to see if you end up in the position of son, but right now, if you have received Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, and eternal life is your present possession. You are a son of God. And God's not in the habit of kicking sons and daughters out of His family. I believe that eternal life is a present possession. The New Testament says we currently, positionally, are already seated at the right hand of the Father. And 2 Corinthians 1.22 says that the Holy Spirit, that God has sealed us, and that He has given us the Holy Spirit as the earnest of our redemption. So when it says He sealed us, it means He's put His mark upon us right now at this present time. And then when He says the Holy Spirit is given to us as our earnest, the word for earnest means a pledge, a promise. It means a promise given in advance 
as security. That's the exact meaning of the word. So when you go to buy a house, if you've ever done, you get under contract, you say, I want to make a promise that I'm going to buy that house. And if you want to do that, you have to write a check that proves it. And the check is called the earnest money. You're paying it. And if you back out, you don't get the money back. So what you're saying is I give you a promise in advance that I am contractually going to buy this house. So to now, we have not received all the fullness of the promises we're due in the Father because that includes a new body. A new body that's like unto the glorious body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be a body that will never get sick or grow old. It's going to be a body where we'll never have to say goodbye to our loved ones, either because we die or they die. When we have the inheritance of eternal life in the new body, it's never going to get sick. It's never going to pass away or get old. But we don't have it yet. We're going to be in heaven, but we're not there yet. But the New Testament says that God took the Holy Spirit and sent it forth into our body at this very moment as the earnest and the promise that all of those things are going to surely be delivered to us. Verse 6 is another great evidence of the doctrine of the Trinity. You've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit right here in this verse. This verse matches Romans chapter 8, which we'll read in just a minute. That is teaching the Spirit here is the Holy Spirit that comes to our heart, our soul, and gives witness to us that we are indeed the children of God. His Spirit is in our inner man, in our heart, as evidence that we are adopted into His family. Then Paul says, by this Spirit, we look to the heavens and we cry, Abba, Father. Listen to this. The word Abba was an Aramaic word, and it was a word that simply meant Father. It was easy for little children to learn to say. It flowed off of the lips. So when they were barely old enough to speak, they would say, Abba. In the same way we would say, Dada, Daddy, the first words that we can form out of affection and love and adoration and a cry for help to our earthly Father. God says this is the same way we go and use as a term of affection and endearment to our Heavenly Father, knowing that we are His child and that He hears our prayers. In this Jewish culture, fathers would often be rigid, not affectionate. They thought it was indignant to run anywhere. So they walked slowly. Everything was done very proper. So then in listening to teachings about the story of the prodigal son, most Bible teachers believe that when the father went sprinting to him, that was less dignified than the father would usually act. When he grabbed him and hugged him and kissed his neck and showed him all of that affection, that was less dignified than a father would usually act. But who was the father in the story of the prodigal son there to represent? He was there to represent our heavenly father. So the Babylonian Jamara, a Talmudic, a Talmudic collection of writings that was written and collected 500 centuries before Christ contained a writing. And in it, it declared that slaves and servants were forbidden to say Abba when they were addressing the master of the house. Do you see what Paul is addressing? He's saying going back to the law is going back to the position of a servant, of a slave. Don't say Abba to the master of the house. Only children get to do that. But Paul says when we're come to Christ and we're no longer under the law, we look to Him and say, My Abba, my Father, I love you, I need you. Would you care for me? Our God is not a cold, distant, 
harsh God somewhere out in the universe that we can know nothing about. He's a personal God. Personally revealed Himself to the world through the person of Jesus Christ. In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus said to Philip, Have you been with me so long and you still don't know? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. We've not seen Jesus in a bodily form as the disciples did. But we've seen Him revealed to us through the Holy Spirit in the knowledge of the truths of the Word of God. We have known, we have seen Christ. We know the fullness of God. All there is to be seen in the glory and riches of God is seen in Jesus Christ. And sometimes we can even, after we come to the Lord, have this false idea of God in our head where we think of Him as being cold or distant or super harsh and we're afraid, what if I break a rule I didn't know about? What if I struggle with the rules that I do know about? God's just going to strike me down. I have to do more. I have to achieve more. I have to be in church more. I have to do more good works more and give more, 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 more. Maybe then He'll be pleased with me. But the picture the New Testament paints of our God is that He's a God who loves His little children and He wants you to look to Him and say, Abba, Father, I'm weak. I'm struggling. Would you help me? And He says, yes, I will. I personally believe that many religions paint a false picture of God as being a cold God who only loves those who hold to the rigidness of His commands. It is written, Allah loves those who do good deeds but not that He loves everyone unconditionally. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And some, in a perverted, twisted, false sense of religion, have strapped bombs to their small children and sent them into the marketplace to take the lives of innocent people, believing that their God would be pleased by this action. God doesn't call us to give our children to Him in that senseless way. But He gave His Son for us to die so that we might receive the riches of the fullness of the gospel. And I love everyone of every race, every creed, every background or religion. I'm not here to hate them or condemn them, but I'm here to say we are called to tell the truth. And the truth will set you free, as Jesus said. So this verse says that God the Father sent the Son. Then He gave the Holy Spirit... And this Holy Spirit witnesses to us that we are God's child. God in His infinite graciousness and kindness has blessed my wife and us with a four-year-old daughter. And I know according to every metric, they say that for her to have the proper view of herself, it's very important that she have a good relationship with her father and get affirmation from her father. But however long I live, however good or poor of a father I am, whatever she gets from me or doesn't get from me, she has a heavenly father she can go to and get all of the affirmation she needs. You are my child. Whatever you got from your earthly father or didn't get, whatever you gave your children or wish you had given them or mistakes you have made, you can keep praying that God through His love will draw them to repentance and He will be their Abba Father. We lack nothing if we are children of God. Nothing. He's given us all we need. Listen to Romans chapter 8 and then Ephesians 1. Bear with me. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, Heirs with God and joint heirs with Christ. 
Do you understand the implications of that? All of the promises that are given to the Lord Jesus Christ that He will one day inherit, we are joint heirs with Him. Not that we're trying to become a God like He is, but we know we're saved through His goodness and all the inheritance of Christ. He lovingly, kindly says you don't deserve it, but I'm going to make you a joint heir and you'll receive of the promises that the Father has said He will give me. That's called grace. That's called love and goodness of God. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I know your suffering is real this morning, but also know that what we're going through for this brief moment in time, this vapor, our pain, our sorrow, is not even a drop in the bucket. It can't even be compared with the glory that is coming our way when we enter into eternity. Paul said, And because ye are sons of God, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Jesus Christ. An heir? Yes! And entitled to all the rights and privileges of an heir. Ephesians 1, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him, in whom also we have obtained the inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him, who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom also ye trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. You have the Holy Spirit now. You have been sealed now. Your promises are secure. Eternal life is a present possession which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, until the praise of His glory. I sure can't wait for the day when I'm in a body that doesn't want to sin. I'm not there yet. But it's coming someday. And the Holy Spirit is here now telling me that it's coming and giving evidence and witnessing to my spirit, telling me, you are a child of God and I am your earnest until the day that all of these things are redeemed and you as God's purchased possession can inherit it. Okay, number three. Legalism returns us to the position of bondage. Verse eight. How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. There's so much to meditate on and, and turn over and pull out of Scripture, but just remember this morning, there was a day when you did not know God. There was a day when you and I were by nature enemies of God, contrary to Him, sinners on our way to the lake of fire. But God in His goodness sent His Son to die on a cross for us. And in His goodness and patience and grace, through no merit of our own, gave us opportunities and chances. We've all lived through days that if we had died on that day, we would have not gone to heaven. Because you have to be old enough to understand the gospel. You're not born into the family of God. You choose to be in it. So then when we reach the age of accountability, we are accountable enough that if we died, we would stand before God and be held responsible for our sins. But God kept our heart beating. He let us lay our head down on the pillow at night, being lost, being His enemy, and said, I'm going to keep them alive, and I'm going to keep calling out to them. And the goodness of God led us to the point of repentance. 
And it wasn't an accident that you stayed alive long enough to get saved. It was the providential hand of the good heart of God. So when you look at people around you and they're stumbling, they say they're Christians, but they're struggling. Don't cast them off or get angry. Love them. Help them. Restore them with the spirit of meekness because God's done the same for you a thousand times. When you look at a wicked world around you who doesn't know God and they're glorifying wickedness and we say sometimes like David in the Psalms and the people, the martyrs in heaven say, How long, O Lord? When will you avenge the blood of the martyrs? When will you put an end to this wickedness? That's not a wrong prayer. That's understandable. But just make sure when you look around you and you see the darkness, you remember that as Christians, we're not just here to curse the darkness. We're here to shine the light. And remember that God loves the person you're angry, you're angry with. God loves the wicked person who's running from Him and being a rebel. Jesus died for them. And when you're grieved with the evil you see, remember that God is far more offended by evil than I am. And God is far more capable of bringing it to justice. So while you pray for justice, also pray for mercy and say, Lord, turn the hearts of those around us to Yourself. Would You please save them the same way You saved me? If you understand the sins you've been forgiven, you will want others to receive that forgiveness also. So Paul's writing to the Galatians. Don't forget, these were not Jewish people. They were the Gauls. They were descendants of the Celtic warriors who conquered the land. They worshipped gods, but Paul said, you worship them which were by, by nature no gods at all. Little case G, false gods. They would worship the Greek gods. They would be in the temple. Zeus, Hermes, Arius, Apollo, etc. They would worship them. They would go to their temple. They would offer sacrifices to them. And Paul said, now you've been taught the gospel. You've come to the position where you know those are false gods. I know you wouldn't want to turn back to Zeus and the absurdity of praying to him. So why? Why would you want to trade one form of bondage for another? Why would you want to trade the old chains for new ones? You have been freed from the false gods you were taught about. Why do you want to now submit to the keeping of the law as a way to salvation when that's just the weak and beggarly elements that God set up for a temporary time to point you to Christ? He's saying don't go backwards. Don't desire to be in bondage again. Now that you have the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, when He says ye did service, the gods which by nature are no gods. He's saying, you were slaves. You were under their bondage, under their deception. You didn't serve God. You were serving them. But you were doing it to them which by nature are no gods. They were false gods. And any god besides our god is a false imposter. Any god besides Jehovah God revealed in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is a false god. The prayers we pray to them are not heard. They won't save you. They don't exist. The Bible says their prophets are in hell unless they have repented and received Jesus Christ. There is one true God. There are many masters competing for our attention in this world today as there always have been. But any master besides God is a cruel master. The Greek gods and the lies about them was a twisted joke. And those who followed that mythology as a way to God were deceived. What a waste to live for a lie. Our life is a vapor. We have a little time to make choices. 
So if we were to live our little life from sun up to sundown and follow a lie, what a waste that is. Paul says you should know better because you know the truth. And as Jesus said, Satan is a liar and the father of it. So are his false prophets. Whether it's Jim Jones seducing his congregation to go to uh, the South America with him, and then when it was found out that abuse was happening and the authorities closed in, he made them all drink poison Kool-Aid and die with him. He's just one in the line of thousands, charlatans, liars, false prophets, who prey upon people so that they themselves may profit off of them financially or otherwise. I think that sometimes maybe some people who come to Christ later in life than I have perhaps have a fuller grip of this truth. But if this Bible is the very Word of God and everything contained therein is fully the truth, then what other life short of full commitment to Christ can make sense at all? Sometimes the best Christians are those who were the wild child before they came to Christ. And they were running wild in everything they put their hand to do. And that's what life is all about. Making money, drinking, getting women, having fun, building businesses, whatever it is, being famous. And then they come to the place where all of a sudden God gets a hold of them. And they realize that Christ is Lord. And they turn and look at others who have a sense of apathy. And they say, if this is the truth, and we believe it is, Why would anything other than giving our all to God in any way we can make any sense at all? I brought ten pages about the life of the missionary William Borden, and I'm not going to sit here and read or summarize any of them. I'll revisit it someday in a little bit more detail. But he lived an incredible life where he was heir to his father's business. And he turned down his, his father's warnings. If you give your life to be a missionary, then you will not inherit the business. He gave his life to be a missionary. And it said that he wrote in his Bible when he was leaving to be a missionary, no reserve. His father told him, you'll never work in the company again if you continue this foolishness. You're too young for that. He wrote in his Bible, no retreat. Then he finally arrived in Egypt and within three months he died from contracting a disease there. But shortly before his death, it said they found in his Bible the phrase... No regret. And through his story that's still told today, there's still a monument of him today at Yale University. Thousands were inspired to go to the mission field and tell people about Christ. I don't think you should go to the mission field unless Christ tells you to. But I do think you and I should give our best for we serve the true God and we will never have any regrets if we do so. Charles Spurgeon, the most famous Baptist preacher that ever lived, preached to thousands every Sunday in London. A Congregationalist pastor that's not quite as well known was named Joseph Parker, who also preached to 3,000 people every Sunday. And some people said he was better at being in the pulpit than Spurgeon was. A family was on vacation and they purposed to go hear these two famous preachers in person. Sunday morning they heard Parker and they left and said, Parker is the greatest preacher that's ever lived. And it said on Sunday night, they left after hearing Spurgeon preached and said, Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior that ever lived. Our eyes should be pointed not to men, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the true God. He is the greatest. I've got to conclude here. 11.57. I'm almost done. There's so much idolatry about us today. There's so many false masters. There's so many gods that by nature and essence are not gods at all. 
It might be a football stadium. It might be the money in your bank account. It might be pleasure. Whatever it is, let us remember only the gospel frees us and certainly not the law. As Paul said, I didn't ride into town and say, read Deuteronomy, keep all 600 laws, and then you'll be free from false gods. He preached very plainly and clearly the Lord Jesus Christ, Him crucified, and that delivered them, and the gospel will deliver us all. Verse 9, But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. Weak and beggarly simply means weak as opposed to strong. Beggarly means poor as opposed to the true riches we have in Christ. And what he's saying is don't trade chains for other chains. Don't trade sin. Don't trade in knowing the true and living God for sin, for false gods, but also don't trade it for legalism. Don't trade it for the keeping of the Old Testament rules and regulations as a way to please God. Let me conclude with this thought here. Legalism would treat everyone like babies. It would take you back to the position of saying, no, 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 you don't know enough to be able to follow God. The Holy Spirit's not enough. I'll tell you what to do. You have to keep this feast day. You have to keep this specific rule. Don't eat that. You have to keep the rules. It's trying to push a person back to the position of being a little baby. So too, though, we may not be looking at Old Testament law, could be just as guilty if we say, I have made a long list of rules that are not in the Bible. Uh, wear a white shirt and a tie, right? Uh, anyway, we had a conversation about that. Uh, don't, don't listen to that song. Uh, don't ever dress like that. Uh, I made the rules. They're not fully listed in Scripture, but I pulled some verses and I made rules. You keep my rules. That's the same thing as looking over someone's shoulder and saying even though we're an adult, no, 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 I have to treat you like a little child. I'll tell you what to do. Legalism says, I'll look over your shoulder. I'll pick all the rules for you. When the Bible has given us specific principles, specific commands, if God says don't commit adultery, that's not optional, okay? But when God says, here's a principle that you're supposed to follow and doesn't clearly spell out what that looks like, we're supposed to say, Holy Spirit, lead me into how I keep the principle and what rules help me keep it. And Holy Spirit, let me trust that the other people who are your children have the Holy Spirit too, and you can lead them differently than you've led me. And maybe I can show them some grace, and we can show each other some grace, if that be the case. I believe that my job as a preacher is to preach the text, and God's Holy Spirit will make the application to every heart in the way that He would do. Again, not specific sins and commands, but general principles. And I believe there's a danger in being too consumed with every message has to have a hundred practical applications. Now, I always want to preach the the, the, the application. How does this apply to my life? But if the text doesn't have a bunch of specific applications, maybe it's okay to just tell what the text says and trust that the Holy Spirit is going to apply it to your heart and your heart and your heart, and He'll lead you, and I don't have to. I think a lot of preachers waste a lot of time frustrated with congregations because they won't follow their specific set of rules. And if you're not where I'm at this morning in a lot of different things, I think I can say, God, help me preach the Bible, and you change them when you want to. It's not my job to force anyone to do anything. Let God move souls to make specific choices. Romans 14 talks a lot about that. Okay, that clock says 12.01, but I think it might be one minute fast. Let me conclude with this. 
in November, Melissa and I were on an airplane at 9.45 at night about to land, coming back from Kansas, and I was finishing the last little bit of the reading that I had done a lot of that day. And I got out my highlighter, and I, I highlighted it, and I said, Melissa, listen to this. This is from John Phillips, and I'll conclude with this. He says, indeed, here is the very essence of legalism. In the New Testament, God sets before us general principles. Legalism lays down the law. It says, you must not do this, that, or the other thing. You must not go here, there, or the other place. You must not wear that or style your hair like that. You must wear this. You must give this amount. Support these meetings or those programs. Restrict yourself to this circle of fellowship and boycott that group there. I'm out of time, so I'm not going to chase that, but boy, is there a lot of that around us. You can believe only what we tell you to believe, and you are to attack everyone who dares to differ. You may read these books, but you mustn't read those. And the result is bondage. It is grown-up childishness. Christ has freed us from all such man-made rules and regulations. We are not allowed, however, to do as we please. We are to master the principles that God has given and govern ourselves as mature adults by those principles. Oh, listen to this one, because I think of a lot of people when I read this one. I'm not saying any names, I promise. That is the heart and soul of legalism. The legalist likes to line everybody up, give orders, and make them march and step to the beat of his drum. Something about that is very intoxicating. To the one giving the orders, that is, it gives him a sense of power. And very lastly, many people do not like freedom. They find it difficult to make decisions for themselves. They like to be told what to believe and what to do. That is why leaders with charm and charisma can so easily find a following no matter how weird and outrageous their cause. People, after all, tend to be like sheep following anyone who will take the lead. There's a comfort in somebody telling us what to think, where to go, what to do, because then I don't have to figure it out myself. But the danger in that is that someone steps up with a lot of charisma and says, I'll tell you what to do when his job is to stand up and tell them what God said and ask them to follow God for themselves in all that they are to do. Let's bow for prayer. Thank you for bearing with me long this morning. In just a moment, the music's going to play a chorus. Let's have a time of prayer. Some people like to come to the altar and pray as a, a symbol of submission to God and of seeking His face. God hears your prayers in your seat as well. Whatever you'd like to do, if you need anything from me this morning, let me know. If I can pray for you, if you need salvation explained, I would love to do that, or many here would as well. Let's reflect upon the message this morning. Let's rejoice that we have an Abba Father in heaven who is accessible at just a prayer away. Let's continue in prayer for just a moment.